0: Good morning, church. Go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Um, We'll be reading about the triumphal entry, even though it's not Easter season. Um, We're coming to this passage in our verse-by-verse study through John. Um, And, you know, we've we've studied this passage before. We really, we study this passage every year, usually from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, Today, we're just going to focus in on John's account of Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday, riding on the donkey, being hailed as the King of the Jews, but I want to uh, set the scene with some Old Testament passages here before we read uh, what John has to say. Um, this this event and, of course, this person that we're looking to, Christ, has been prophesied uh, abundantly in the Old Testament, and and there's just a few verses that I want to point out to you. In Second Samuel chapter seven, um, God promised David that he would have an heir whose kingdom would be eternal. That's a big promise. Uh, We read about this a few months back in our our midweek study in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. It says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That's a big promise. And the Jews were sure to get it in writing, so it's in our Bibles now. And we call it the Davidic covenant. Uh, God promised David an heir that would be the Messiah, uh, who would be king And in Jesus' life, he is called the son of David. um, Many places. And and that's what this is talking about. Now, uh, around Christmas time, it's not Christmas time either. still October. Don't even think about Christmas yet. Um, But in Christmas time, on the Christmas cards and uh, church decorations and things, you see Isaiah 9, 6, uh, a whole lot. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And usually that's where the the Christmas card ends, but it keeps going. Isaiah keeps going. It's a long book. It says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever so you see in the, just in those two passages i shared in second samuel and isaiah that we see a promise of a son being born who would be god isaiah was clear about that his name will be mighty god and he would rule from the throne of david forever and ever now one more verse about this in daniel and daniel is uh chapter 2 verse 44 it says of his kingdom the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed that should make you excited i think Uh, this kind of thing is, is all over the old testament it's kind of a big deal for the old testament saints to be looking for a king who would be the son of david and so we come to this passage in john chapter 12 and a whole lot of people are saying the king has come The king has come. Everything that we have hoped for is now here in this person of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's a beautiful thing. So let's read it. John chapter 12, uh, verse 12 says, The next day, I had to put something up there. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness for this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign the Pharisees therefore said among themselves you see that he ha- that you are accomplishing nothing look the world has gone after him and last the last chapter just a little uh, or sorry the last sermon in this chapter um, we saw a scene of worship uh, with Mary uh, anointing the feet of Jesus with the expensive perfume and we saw the enemies of worship. Those who ask, is Jesus really worth it? And that's Judas. And now we have this story right here, right, parallel, on purpose. John wrote one and then the other, and he put them both in the same chapter. Um, and here, again, we see worshippers, and we see the enemies of worship who are saying, this isn't worth it. Jesus isn't worth it. We have to come against this. Uh, We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on those enemies of worship because it's just too beautiful a scene to waste on Pharisees. Um, But we see Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the feast. And uh, in Jerusalem, sorry, uh, coming into Jerusalem is not, just like going into the next town or or going into any city for groceries for jesus going into jerusalem is an extremely dangerous venture Uh, jerusalem is dangerous if you go back to 11 chapter 11 verse 53 um which i'm going to try to do it says from that day on they plotted to put him to death that's the people in jerusalem from that day on they plotted to put him to death so ever since lazarus had been raised from the dead uh, that the death sentence that they had considered much earlier in Jesus' ministry, just to be clear. But now they are strategizing, they're putting plans into place to, for how they are going to kill Jesus. In verse 57, at the end of um, chapter 11, it says, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So if anyone sees Jesus, the order is take him and seize him. We're going to arrest him, and then we are going to find some way to kill him. That's been the plan now, and that's where Jesus is going. Um, Jerusalem has been dangerous for the people of God for a long time before. It's not included in the Gospel of John here, but in other Gospels you see Jesus' emotional prayer over Jerusalem where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to her. And so this has happened before with the other ones that the Lord has sent. And now that he has sent his son, it's going to happen again. Um, And he knew it. Jesus knew it. And uh, in, in a rare turn of events, the disciples understood this too. They don't understand a lot, but they understood that Jerusalem was dangerous. If you go back to verse 8 of 11, of chapter 11, Uh, After verse 7, it says, Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Uh, That's what's happening here. Um, He is going there again, even though the last time he was in the city proper, they had actually picked up stones, preparing to throw them at Jesus. That was the last time he was in Jerusalem, in the Gospel of John. And so now he is going into a dangerous place. He is going into a dark place. He's going to where his enemies are and he is met with praise. And that's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful that we have a God that goes into the dangerous places. Uh, We have a savior who goes towards his enemies. You know who his enemies are? It's us. We were his enemies. That, the, the scripture makes that very, very clear that we were darkness. We were enemies of God. And it was while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes towards his enemies and here he is met with praise. Um, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. I love this. So, Hosanna means save now. It means save now. They're crying out, be our Savior. And they're they're quoting a scripture, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, um, they're quoting this from Psalm 118, verse 25. And I'm actually going to go ahead and turn there, and I think you should too, because um, there's some cool verses around here for context. Let me get my bookmark there. Psalm 118, verse uh, says, Save now, that's Hosanna, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Um, Now, they don't pray that in the Gospel of John, right? They don't pray that on Palm Sunday, send us prosperity. But by quoting this passage, you can kind of see what it was they were actually asking for. Prosperity. Um, And in John, it adds this little phrase that you won't see in Psalm 118, the king of Israel. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of Israel. And uh, that's, that's added there in order to explain the mindset behind the praise. In other words, these people desperately want a king. They want a king. And as we, uh, we read in, in Samuel and Isaiah and Daniel, a king and a kingdom had been promised. A king and a kingdom is what they had been looking forward to. Now, this is not the first time that Israel has wanted a king for the wrong reasons. Right? You're familiar with the the story of of King Saul, um, and and at that time, it wasn't a bad thing to have a king. In fact, you can go back all the way to Deuteronomy when the when Israel was led by you know one of its greatest leaders, Moses, and in uh, Under the leadership of Moses, the law was written, and there was laws written for when you have a king. God's going to give you a king. You're going to have a king. There will be a kingdom. And that was fine. But when the people, under Samuel's rule, desired a king, the Lord makes it very clear. He says, they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel, prophet. They're rejecting me the reason they want a king right now is not so that he can lead them to better worship or to to better obedience to the Lord their God. They want a king so they can look like everyone else or even so they could be better than everyone else, better than their neighbors. And in wanting that king who they were given, King Saul, who didn't turn out so well, they were rejecting their one true king, the Lord, the God of Israel. And so now are they making the same mistake There's a people here that see their king coming and he is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And they're saying, Hosanna, save now, be our savior. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and send prosperity. Be our king, the king of Israel. And all that seems really, really good. But are they making the same mistake that Israel made with Saul? I believe they are because this crowd will reject their God too. This crowd will desire a king, which isn't in itself a bad thing, but they do it with a fractured heart, with a with the wrong attitude, uh, with the wrong at, um the wrong way of worshiping the Lord their God, and and they get they almost prophesy here. They get they almost um, if they kept quoting from Psalm 118, which I already lost the place here. I gotta go back to it. Psalm 118. Thank you for your patience. Psalm 118. If they had kept reading, then they could have seen some more of what Christ was and more of what he was intending to do. So back in um, chapter 22, or sorry, verse 22 of Psalm 118, we have this famous verse, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And, And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this verse as something that Jesus speaks to the people um, in in his last week, not on this day, but in this final week. In Matthew 21, 42, Matthew Mark 12, verse uh, 10, Luke 20, verse 17, um, you have Jesus quoting this verse saying, you know, I'm the stone which you rejected. These people are going to reject the, the chief cornerstone again. And you see, Hosanna is good. To say Hosanna is great. We sing it, you know, we, we sing it all the time. Um, to say save now, that's good. That is uh, shows our our awareness of our need for salvation and our trust in Christ and His power to save. That's wonderful. But what did they want saving from? And you have to ask yourself this: What do you need saving from? And I would say, if your answer, if your first answer is not simply sin. If your answer is not sin, then your priorities need shifting. Because sin is what we need saving from. You know, lesser saviors will save you from lesser things. If you think you need saving from other things, there are people who will, who will offer you a solution, the magic pill. And, and you can change your lifestyle and get good habits and eat healthy and work out more and, and balance your budget. And you can do all those those things and be saved from lesser problems. But the greatest problem that you face and that I face is that I am a sinner. Now, you're a sinner. From birth, we are sinners. And the greatest need we have is someone to save us from our corrupt nature. And I don't think that's what the people on Palm Sunday were praying for. Again, lesser saviors will save you from lesser things, and they want a lesser savior. And you have to examine that in your heart to see, is, is that what you want? Do you want a lesser savior? And one way to check, one way, uh, there are a couple ways to check, actually. That, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? Um, are you praying for things that God could provide but also could be achieved through other means? Or are you praying for holiness and intimacy with God? No one comes to the Father but by Christ, but by Jesus. And so, you know, are, are you spending time praying for things that only God can give you? Then He's a great Savior. It's a great Savior that you're praying for. Are you praying for things that... And I, I believe in praying for lost keys and things like that. Pray for those things too. Absolutely. Pray for all things. The big things, the little things, and everything. But examine your heart's desires. Because if the things that you want are mostly prosperity, like in Psalm 118. If, it, if it's mostly, you know, a, a Lord who can put your life in order into some sort of comfortable order where you're happy to live it, well then, you're, you're wanting a lesser Savior. And Jesus saves from so much more than that. Uh, and another way to, to see, you know, if you want a lesser Savior is how much your heart is bound up In issues of politics Uh, how do you feel about our upcoming election if you feel that one outcome will cause you peace while another will cause you know just a a bad attitude and and turmoil and the end of the world as we know it if that's what you believe then you're wanting a savior that's too small our Savior saves from bigger things than that Um, this is a political passage John chapter 12, 12 through 19 is a political passage because there are people that want a king and an earthly kingdom. And we're surrounded with people that want the same, okay? It's an election year, uh, it's an election week. So people want a kingdom. People are, are voicing their opinions and trying to get the kingdom that they want built on earth. And Jesus tells Pilate very clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. And I say it every every year and, and Easter and Palm Sunday when we get to this passage. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, and Christians have been trying to prove him wrong ever since. Now, this crowd can be a mirror for us. You know, they want temporal, physical, political solutions, and Jesus addresses eternal spiritual problems you know they they want a king and, and, and actually there's some other symbols here they, they add the king of Israel to their Psalm 119 passage and, and the palm branches there which we just kind of skipped over there those have significance too actually palm branches had become a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Okay. This started with the Maccabees, actually, but it continued uh, long after Christ's death in the revolts of 66 to 70, and then the next Jewish revolt in the 140s, I think. Um, they, they printed palms on their coins to show that we are Israel, we're not under Rome, we are a nation unto ourselves. And so the palms here had become a symbol of national identity and national autonomy, which is something that, of course, Israel did not have at this time. They were under Rome. They were, they were an occupied territory. And so they are coming and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're right. Jesus can save now and he is blessed and he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But their hearts wanted Jesus to be something other than Jesus is. And again, this can be a mirror for us because we can go to Christ and want him to be less or other than what he is. Now we can sanctify this Palm Sunday worship service by saying and by singing Hosanna the right way. We say Hosanna, save now. Save from what? Save from sin. Because that is the problem. The, sin, the, the problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. So Jesus, save us from this problem. And then we can make Jesus king the right way. We can pray this and the exact same thing this this misled crowd prayed. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. But if we're going to call him the king, then we need to make him the king in the right way. What does that look like? Um, well, let's, let's skip ahead, actually. I'll show you. We're not going to get into this passage this week. It's next week. It's it's worth its own sermon. But verse 24 my Father will honor. (laughs) This is what it means to make Christ king. You follow him all the way to the cross. This crowd didn't do that. Neither did the disciples. But Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. This is part of the Psalm 118 passage that they missed. You know, if they had kept on reading Psalm 118, they would have read verse 27, which says, bind the sacrifice on the altar. And there are two truths that the crowd was unwilling to accept, but that we must, we must accept. One is that Jesus is the sacrifice of Psalm 118. He is the Passover lamb. This is Passover when this is happening, right? It's the beginning of Passover week. Jerusalem is full of people and full of lambs. Uh, the law in Exodus said you had to have your lamb live with you for three days prior to Passover. So people are coming there with their livestock and they're buying livestock there in Jerusalem. It's full of, of sheep. And Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice. And this crowd was not willing to, to accept that. Um, I said there's two things the crowd was unwilling to accept. One is that Jesus is the sacrifice for their sins. But the second truth comes after that. If you're, if you're able to accept that first one, if you're able to believe that Jesus dies for sins and sinners, then you also are led to the truth that you are the sacrifice. Now there's many areas in Scripture where this becomes true. What is true of Christ becomes true of us. He says, I am the light of the world. But he also says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world right? And and here we, we know that Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. But when we realize that we worship around that truth, in light of that truth, Romans 12.1 comes up. Romans 12.1 says, we present our bodies, or it's a command actually, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is how you make Jesus king. You accept his sacrifice which they were unwilling to do. You think of Peter, when Jesus says, I've got to go and I've got to die. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter takes him aside and says, No, Lord. (laughs) That's not something you can say. We have to avoid that mistake and accept Christ's sacrifice for sins. And then you become a sacrifice. You become a seed in the ground. You follow Jesus. You take up your cross and you follow him. That's how we can sanctify this Palm Sunday worship. Let's go to verse 14 says, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, um, John leaves out most of the the story here that Matthew and Luke include, or Matthew and Mark, and um, that's where, you know, he tells the disciples to go and find, he says, you're going to find uh, a donkey and her colt, they're tied up, and you're going to take them. And when people say, what are you doing? Just say, the master has need of them, and then I'll, I'll take care of it from there. Uh, they'll let it go, and it'll be fine. John leaves that out. It just says that he found a donkey, sat on it, and this was done in order f- to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, he's riding into the city of Jerusalem, and that is something that kings do. Kings ride into cities. You think of, of uh, Caesar crossing the Rubicon, right? Now, Jesus is crossing uh, into Jerusalem for a very different reason, with a very different attitude. And this is prophesied for us here in Zechariah 9, 9, um, which is quoted in part here in, in John 12, verse 15. But it's also quoted for us, and i got to find it here, in uh, Daniel chapter 9. And so we're obviously reading here about a royal procession. But Zechariah is not the only place where such a royal procession was prophesied. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, and you can turn there if you're interested. Daniel 9, 25 says this. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. And you stop there, although the rest of the prophecy is really interesting too. Um, but that's for another day. But this prophecy of verse 25 gives a segment of time. Uh, the verse says from, that from point A, which is the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, to point B, which is the coming of Messiah the Prince, there are seven weeks and 62 weeks. The word for week really just means seven Um, So this says that from the command to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes, that it will be 69 sevens, 69 segments of time that are divisible by seven. Now, if a week in this case is seven years, which would make sense, that puts the time distance between these two events at 483 years. And this had better be the most fun you've had doing math in church. Here's an interesting thing. Because we know exactly when this first thing took place the command to restore and build jerusalem was a historical day that is recognized as factual and accurate you can read about it in the book of nehemiah uh, and we can also do math 69 uh, uh 69 weeks of seven years apiece is 483 years now if you multiply the ancient 360 day calendar Uh, by 483, we get 173,880 days. I'm sure glad I did the math beforehand so I didn't have to do this, you know, live. And this is exciting, I know. Uh, If you count up 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 BC, which is the date that King Artaxerxes gave the order in Nehemiah to build Jerusalem, If you count that many days from that day, you get April 6th, 32 AD. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you what happened on April 6th, 32 AD. This happened. John chapter 12 happened. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, just like he was supposed to. And the Jews should have seen it coming. They really should have seen this coming, but they didn't. They missed it. And so did the disciples. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Um, And we'll we'll read the rest of that verse in a second. But Jesus coming in on this donkey, he was being clear. Um, He was clear in his choice of steed. Uh, The the king on a donkey seems strange to to most of us, because we don't see that in the movies and the picture books, I guess, but... A king on a donkey wouldn't have been unheard of. Uh, You read about David's sons, the princes riding on mules. In Judges, you read of uh, the leaders close to royalty riding on donkeys. So that was okay, but there was a, a symbol here. A king riding into a city on a horse gives the idea, and it sends the message of a conquering king. A king who is at war. Coming in on a donkey means peace. Jesus is coming, bringing salvation. Now in Revelation 19, of course, we read about Jesus coming again on a horse. Next time Jesus comes to earth, he will be riding on a horse, and he will wage war. But here, he he comes in riding on a donkey. And this is prophesied again in Zechariah 9, verse 9. And, And the rest of Zechariah, the rest of that verse, says he's coming just and having salvation. But again, Salvation from what? Because they wanted salvation from Rome, right? They wanted salvation from oppression and taxes and all these things. But the king on a donkey was coming with justice and salvation. Now, those two things married together here is a really a beautiful picture because, um, of course, we know that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to satisfy divine justice he is coming to Jerusalem in order to have all sin punished. Now, is that what the people want? Is that, what, is that what this crowd wants when they say, Hosanna, come save us? No, they're assuming that everyone else is a sinner but them, and they're wrong. When you see that the king is coming to bring justice, there should be a healthy fear there. But he's bringing justice and salvation. Sinners want mercy, not justice, if they know what's good for them. But only Jesus can satisfy justice and bring salvation. There's a beautiful verse in 1 John where it says he is just to forgive. Forgiveness from Christ is not counter to divine justice. Jesus showing mercy on sinners is not an excuse from justice. It's not putting aside justice. It is satisfying justice. And Jesus on the cross did exactly that. He satisfied the divine justice. Sin must be punished. And Christ allowed it to be punished on himself in order that he might bring salvation to those who deserve the punishment. Jesus coming, riding on the donkey, is is quoting in a, in a visual aid kind of way, in, in a skit almost, he is quoting Zechariah 9.9, 9, which says he's coming just and having salvation. Both of those things, justice and mercy, together in this one event. And the disciples don't understand. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Whoops, forgot again. Let's uh go ahead and unplug that. Forgive me, please. We read this, right? Yeah, we read verse 16. Um, the disciples did not understand. And man, that's us, isn't it? Just not understanding how little we understand. Now, when did they understand? It says when Jesus was glorified. And I think there's a lesson for us here. Um, Seek the glory of Christ if you're wanting understanding. Seek understanding here. When Jesus was glorified, then their eyes were opened. Then they understood. Now, a reminder from last week, Mary, the true worshiper, She understood things that all the thinkers couldn't, all the theologians, all the accountants couldn't understand because she spent time at the feet of Jesus and she understood that she was anointing his body for burial, even when the disciples didn't get that at all. But here it says the disciples did finally understand things when Jesus was glorified. Seek the glory of God for understanding. What will glorify him most? That's what you should seek in order to fill yourself with the knowledge of God. Now in verse 17, I'm just going to finish it up here. It says, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees are confessing now, we are powerless. The the Pharisees, they they can't do anything against this kind of popularity. Uh, But you see, uh, again, one of the reasons why this crowd met Jesus was because they had heard of Lazarus' resurrection. And they're thinking, if there's a guy that can raise the dead, well, surely he could overthrow Caesar. And Jesus here is at the peak of his fame due to Lazarus' resurrection. And this is positive and neg- negative, right? The Hosanna uh, people, uh, the Hosanna shouters and the Pharisees uh, both are, are reacting to Jesus' power of resurrection. And we'll see in the next verse, which we'll get into next week, it says, now there are certain Greeks among those who had come to worship at the feast, that Jesus is gaining international fame because of his power over the grave. And that's a really good thing. Again there's misled people here there's there's ignorant people here there's there's people that don't understand all of what Jesus is bringing and we're not judging them harshly we're not blaming them we are like them in so many ways we're like the disciples that don't understand things at first but then we do <laughs> then then he's glorified and we we get to see it but Jesus is is so famous here and he's so uh, welcomed because he has power over the grave. Now, shouldn't that be why he is welcomed in every tribe, and every nation, in every tongue today? Because he has power over the grave? It, it, it stands to reason that this would make a person famous. And it, it is. The fact is, it is making Jesus famous. And this is the message that we declare to the world. Not just that he, he raised Lazarus from the dead, Um, but that Christ himself has has been raised from the dead, and he has raised us from the dead. He still has power over the grave. And this message gets out, and it makes his enemies realize they're helpless. They can't do anything against a person who has power over death. They try, they try and kill him, but really that seems to be the, the least effective solution to someone who has power over death. Jesus is coming in and he is being worshipped. He is being praised. They're praising him as the king of the Jews. And and again, all of that is, it's good and it's bad. It's good because it's true. He is the king of the Jews, but it's, it's less than perfect because these people are wanting a political king. And they're wanting a small savior to save from small problems. And Jesus is a big savior who saves from big problems. Now, again, in Revelation 19, we see Jesus coming to earth on a white horse. And he's coming to the earth in glory. And again, when Jesus is glorified, the disciples understood. And you know what? When Jesus comes again in glory, we will understand. We'll see him and we'll know him, even as we also are known. That the veil will come, that will be lifted. And we'll see and we'll understand. He'll come with all his saints, and he's coming to set planet Earth back in order. And when he comes, he's got a name written on his robe and on his thigh, and it says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Paul says in Titus 2 that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we are waiting for Christ's return, we are waiting for a king. We're still waiting for a king. This is a messed up world, and it needs some solid leadership. And we can't be fooled that anything else can bring peace on earth. Jerusalem failed to see what had come to bring them peace. Let us not be guilty of thinking that we can find peace in anything less than Jesus Christ. Let us not be guilty in thinking that the world will have peace under any circumstances except submission to the Prince of Peace. Jerusalem failed to see their king when he came. And this is a common theme in the life of Christ, isn't it? At his birth, there was no room for him. But if they had known who was being born, they would have made room. There were angels praising God at his birth, but he had to be born in an animal stall. As he enters Jerusalem, his disciples praising him, he's fulfilling prophecies, coming as the king, bringing peace. It's obvious who he is, but Jerusalem didn't accept him as such. Jerusalem failed to see their king when he came. And it is our charge now to be watchful. Jesus says many, many times to be watchful, be ready, be awake. Not just for his future return, though we should be ready for that as well, but for what he wants you to do for your king today, and what he wants to do as your king today. Today is the day of salvation. Now five days after Palm Sunday, when he was hanging from the cross, his accusation, the crime that sentenced him to death, was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He made it clear who and what he was. Today, Jesus has made it clear who he is. He is still the king. He is the absolute authority ruling over this universe and the lives of his people. There are only two things that you can do with such a king. Jesus says that he is a stone and you can either fall on him and be broken or have him fall on you and be crushed into powder. Jesus is our king and our responsibility is to fall down and worship him, be broken on him. To worship Jesus, to fall on the rock and be broken, humble, dependent on him. Jesus wept for the unrepentant sins of Jerusalem, and I believe he would weep for the unrepentant among us today. So we worship him instead, and we sanctify this Palm Sunday worship service. We sanctify it and say, Hosanna, save now, save from sin. I don't want a small Savior to save from small things. I want the Savior to save from the, from everything. We say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. And he's not only the king of Israel, he's my king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And I worship him and praise him and serve my king. And even if that means being a grain of wheat cast into the ground so that it might not remain unfruitful, that's what I'm signing up for. That's what we are signing up for. We're following him, we're taking up our cross and following the king of kings. So let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. Hosanna, save now, God. Let today be the day of salvation. Save us from our, our foolishness and thinking that sin is small and there's other things that are more worthy of your time. Um, save us from thinking that you're, you're a small savior. God, save us from whatever we need saving from. And let us worship you uh, to, to the extent of your worthiness. As far as we can reach in worship, let us worship that far. We praise you. We love you. We ask that you would be the king in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.